Welcome to this special gastrointestinal stromal cancer issue of Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We gathered 10 practicing oncologists to present GIST cases to our faculty of medical oncologists, Drs. George Dimitri, Jonathan Trent, and Charles Blanke, surgical oncologist Dr. Burton Eisenberg, and pathologist Dr. Brian Rubin. To begin, I asked Dr. Bill Harwin to present to Drs. Dimitri, Trent, and Eisenberg two GIST cases from his practice that typify the spectrum of primary disease. The first patient is a 65-year-old white female who was found in July of 2003 to have an esophageal mass. She underwent a total esophagectomy with pyloroplasty in July of that year. It was initially, it was read by the local pathologist as a leiomyosarcoma, but it was sent to MD Anderson where it was felt to be a GIST tumor. It was felt to be a high-risk GIST tumor based on the size and mitotic activity. The tumor was 11.5 centimeters, margins of resection were free, and there was one negative lymph node. There were greater than 20 mitotic figures per 50 high-power fields, and CKIT and CD34 were positive. The patient was treated with post-operative radiation. After completion of radiation, it was elected off trial to treat her with adjuvant imitinib or Gleevec starting in October 2003. She had some dumping syndrome post-surgery, but tolerated Gleevec fairly well and was elected to treat her for two years and then stopped therapy. She was last seen in November of this year, was doing well with no signs of recurrence. The second patient is a 73-year-old white male who presented with hematochesia and an 8 to 10-pound weight loss. He had a past medical history of ankylosing spondylitis. EGD showed a 3-centimeter gastric mass with ulceration. Biopsy was non-diagnostic. In April of 2004, he underwent a partial gastrectomy with Bill Roth one reconstruction. He was found to have, at surgery, a palpable mass high in the cardiac of the stomach that was exophytic in nature. Final pathology was also reviewed at MD Anderson, was just low-risk, negative margins, three negative nodes, again positive for CKIT and CD34, and up to two mitotic figures per 50 high-power fields. He was not treated adjuvantly, was offered a trial, but didn't want to participate and he's just been followed, was last seen in November, and doing well with no signs of recurrence. So Dr. Trent, if you could talk a little bit about these two cases and how they fit in the spectrum of what we see in terms of primary gist. So these are both fairly common presentations for primary gist, and they really put your approach in perspective, the differences in the two cases. So a question in the second case is, the patient had the size of the tumor assessed on two separate occasions, how far apart were they and how much had it grown? Well, one was just his diagnosis, then shortly after that at surgery, okay, so, so the size was the same. Short interval, okay. So for the first case, for an 11-centimeter gist that has a high mitotic rate, the risk of that patient developing metastases in their lifetime with surgery alone is probably over 50%. So that's the whole rationale for starting the adjuvant studies and the neoadjuvant studies. On the other hand, the other case, a small tumor, three centimeters with a low mitotic rate, particularly gastric tumors, the chance of that tumor recurring in the patient's lifetime is significantly less, and I suspect is less than 20%, maybe less than 10%. These docs are used to using adjuvant online in breast and colon cancer where they put a bunch of numbers in and come up with a number. Are there any algorithms like that for GIST? 
Well, there are some tables where you can put in the site and the size and the mitotic rate, but they come from different data sets and different people interpret it in different ways. There's not a widely accepted risk model. What about the issue of surgery, Dr. Eisenberg? What are some of the different ways that these tumors are approached, and what about laparoscopic surgery? Yeah, well, I think we've learned a lot about GIST over the last seven, eight years about how to get better surgical results for these patients. I think one thing that we know is that this, unlike epithelial type of GI cancer, it's quite rare for these tumors to metastasize the lymph nodes. So when I'm doing a gastric GIST, I'm not that concerned about a wide field resection. Nodal retrieval is not that significant. Secondly, is that we know that it's important to remove all gross tumor. Margins here, though, again, unlike some epithelial cancers, don't have to be significant in terms of if we were doing an adenocarcinoma of the stomach, we'd like to get five to seven centimeter margins around the cancer. Here, a negative margin of one to two centimeters is certainly sufficient so that many of these cases now, and we see these sort of exophytic tumors, mainly submucosal, they can be ulcerative, but mostly exophytic tumors, and they can obtain fairly large size, but some of these can be wedged out of the stomach, especially if they're along the greater curvature, without having to do a major gastric resection. So I, uh, about a week ago, had an elderly woman who had a gastric gist, primary gist of about five or six centimeters, and I wedged that out of her stomach, and she was able to go home in a few days. Laparoscopic surgery, again, for the experienced laparoscopist, it is reasonable to approach some of these smaller tumors by laparoscopic resection, and they do. And I don't think that it's reasonable to approach something that is seven, eight, nine, or more centimeters, because I think the chances of having a misadventure in terms of tumor spillage is fairly significant. These tumors are, tend to be rather friable at the time of surgery. And I even like to keep the resonance hands away from them, frankly, until we sort of mobilize everything and get things ready to go. There is certainly a very significant thought out there about patients, for instance, with an 11-centimeter esophageal cancer, a GIST, to possibly downsize that patient. And we can talk about that, but a cytoreduction with drug as the initial treatment, even in primary tumors, is probably not a bad idea. I've had a number of patients with GE junction GIST that have been downsized to the point where they actually did not need an esophagogastrectomy. And in an elderly patient or even a 65-year-old patient, there's a big difference between having to do an esophageal anastomosis or a total gastrectomy and just doing some lesser procedure. So in that case, it sort of takes a multidisciplinary approach, but it's not unreasonable to consider downstaging some of these patients in critical areas. One sort of common question that comes up in a lot of different tumors from the point of view of a non-surgeon is at what point do you think about sending a patient to a tertiary center as opposed to allowing a community doc to do their procedure? And just how much variation is in there as the quality of the surgery, the judgment, et cetera? Well, I think that most well-trained general surgeons are quite familiar with GI resections, and I think that that can be handled reasonably well on a community level. 
where we see these referrals basically come sort of in two groups. One is very large tumors, tumors where a lot of general surgeons may not feel that comfortable in handling. And secondly is tumors in areas where there might be some controversial management issues, such as G-junction, rectal, duodenal, those areas where a surgical resection oftentimes has a significant consequence in terms of morbidity. Dr. Dimitri, can you talk a little bit about sort of the historical evolution of the GIST concept? The first case you brought up, Bill, actually brings this up beautifully because it was initially diagnosed as a leiomyosarcoma, and then upon expert review, the diagnosis was changed to a GIST, in that case at MD Anderson Pathology. GIST was essentially totally unrecognized before the year 2000, before around 1999, the year 2000. It was hiding in other diagnostic bins. The truth is, most of them were being called sarcomas of some sort, sometimes leiomyosarcomas, but at least a third of the GISTs, which are epithelioid, were also being miscategorized as epithelioid, poorly differentiated carcinoma. So we've seen true GIST patients who thought initially that they were told they had ovarian cancer or gastric carcinoma or prostate cancer, depending on which part of their body the tumor happened to arise in. Increasingly, the pathologists have all educated themselves. We are so impressed with the quality of community pathology across the world right now that it is increasingly able to make this diagnosis with very, very good accuracy. At the margin, at the 5 or 10% margin, we still worry about some of the difficult-to-diagnose cases, people who may have low expression of KIT, which certainly is not all that uncommon and has nothing at all to do with how malignant the disease is. It's not as if you need overexpression of KIT to have an aggressive gist that are totally unconnected. In terms of numbers of cases, before the year 2000, people thought there were less than 500 gist cases a year. Clearly, population studies have now shown that there's more than 5,000 cases in the U.S. alone of gist, and many people think it's probably more like 15,000 if you include these tiny little gistlets, these microgists that increasingly the endoscopists are seeing when they go down looking at somebody with a hiatal hernia and they see a little pimple on the side of the esophagus and they snap it off and it's two millimeters, and it turns out to be a gist. In fact, there have been recent studies of carefully sectioning stomach sections, either from autopsy or from other stomach surgery, and found an enormous incidence, more than 60% incidence of gists at a micro level inside stomach. So our whole concept of what is a gist is actually probably about to get stood on its head. Now, I, for one, don't think any of those patients with the microgists have any fear that the disease is going to metastasize. Most of the consensus reports of looking back over even the past 10 years have confirmed that the real risk seems to be around one centimeter. But that's still pretty small. There are a lot of gastroenterologists who will find a gist that's one and a half centimeters and simply watch. And we are concerned about that. Maybe one two millimeter gist, I don't mind. But a one and a half centimeter gist, we still think demands resection and very careful management. Now these cases, the 11 and a half centimeter one, the other one that was three centimeters, resecting those clearly was indicated. And then you bring up the interesting question over who should get adjuvant therapy, who should not. And I think that's a very, very important and interesting discussion that is based on many other factors. Is there any role for this patient got post-op radiation, I assume because they thought it was a sarcoma, but is there any role for radiation? There's no data that GISTs are sensitive to radiation. Let's put it like that. So we typically, I believe that this probably patient might have gotten the radiation because it was thought that it was a sarcoma. I don't know. 
But if a patient, they're very rare patients with bony metastases from GIST. We've probably seen thousands of GISTs, and I think only three to five come to mind who have true GIST that is metastasized to the bone. If patients have pain from their bones, radiation can offer palliation, like in almost any other cancer, but we don't believe that radiation offers a lot of anti-neoplastic benefit other than that, and especially in the esophageal area where radiotherapy is potentially very toxic. Bill, what happened in that? This does typify a real-world problem sometimes in that patients are sent either concomitantly to the radiation therapist, the medical oncologist, or sometimes the radiation therapy first, Mm. and sometimes it's a negotiation, and Sometimes you have to have data to prove it's not worthwhile. And, of course, this was you know, almost five years ago as well. Sushil? I have a question for Dr. Trent. What are the tests that you would recommend for a community pathologist to do on the specimen? And would those tests then dictate what kind of dose of imatinib one might pick? So, I mean, immunohistochemistry is initial. Right. H&E, immunohistochemistry, right. kit staining, CD34, SMA, S100... Desmond, those are usually the standard right. panel that are done. But the um, exon studies that you were talking Now, the exon study, doing the kit mutation testing, I do it in all of my patients that come to see me at MD Anderson. If an outside pathologist sends it to our pathology and requests that specifically, it's my understanding that they're doing that now at MD Anderson. So the reason that I do it in my patients is... Because if a patient has an exon 9 mutation, then I try to treat them at 800 milligrams or at least at the highest dose that they tolerate reasonably well. And their nausea, vomiting, diarrhea can be really bad frequently for the first two or three weeks, and then those start going away. Other things like edema and fatigue don't go away. And that was mentioned in the EORTC phase 3 study. And in clinical practice, that's a common phenomena. So I start all of my metastatic GIST patients at 400 milligrams. And then once I get the mutation testing back and they come back to see me after a month, if they have exon 9 mutation, then I escalate their dose to 800 milligrams. Now, that's only about 10 to 15% of patients, so it's not that common. But I think there's sufficient data to support that. With the fluid retention and your bad cardiac patients, have you had... Issues on, I mean, I know the CML trials, we've had issues with CHF. Do we have, with your GIST population, have you seen congestive heart failure a problem? We've never seen congestive heart failure as a problem. Now, mind you, we've been very sensitive to monitoring the fluid status in patients, and so we have a low threshold to start some diuretics if it becomes a problem. It can pick up in people's ski boots, for example. Again, these are you know, obviously active people who have to change their ski boots because there's not a lot of forgiveness in there if they start to hide 10 pounds in their legs. Other than that, we honestly haven't seen it. We do think that that extra fluid could be a burden on the heart and probably explains some of the concerns that are in the literature about kinase inhibitors like imatinib or even sunitinib as leading to some cardiac events. But our experience with this has been extremely favorable, and we've been able to manage through this in virtually everybody. John, what about MD Anderson? Yeah, at ASCO last year, we presented a series of about 220 patients and looked at those that had any potential cardiac toxicity. And there was one patient that had a drop in EF out of 220, all on a matinib. And that patient had diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, 
and you know whether or not it was coincidental or whether or not it was in some way related, I don't know, but it was one patient out of 220. But the fluid retention is a big problem, and that certainly may impact cardiac function and certainly affects quality of life and can lead to other arrhythmias and other problems like that. So it does need to be managed fairly aggressively. Dr. Eisenberg, can you sort of track out where we've been in terms of adjuvant therapy and where we are right now? Well, I think we're still going. There was a thought when the early results of the B2222 trial, the phase two trial that sort of established the use of imatinib for advanced disease. There was a thought at that point is this is a good drug. It's oral. It's got a low toxicity profile and it works. This would be an ideal drug to put into an adjuvant setting. The problem was to try to evaluate this drug in an adjuvant setting, first of all, you had to look at risk profiles. You had to get the right patients. We didn't want to treat patients who actually wouldn't benefit by virtue of the fact that their disease probably had a low chance of recurring. So there had to be a consensus of what that means. The second thing was that at the time, we weren't really certain that there would be enough patients to run a trial where survival would be an endpoint because the drug is pretty good and it would probably promote prolonged survival and there wasn't a whole lot of interest in trying to do a randomized study. So a lot of the experiences were anecdotal. They were institutionally based. I think one of the patients in this case was placed on adjuvant therapy. Right. And, it was in 2003. And, and yeah, and that was sort of early in the game. So the ACASOG trials, both of which have now been completed, but short-term follow-up. The first was a phase two trial, which really took the highest risk group, those patients who had tumors that were greater or equal to 10 centimeters, or who had evidence of tumor rupture during surgery. And those patients were put on a post-operative adjuvant course of a standard dose of imatinib of 400 milligrams a day for one year. Why that dose and why that time interval? Because that was the consensus of the individuals who were actually making up the trial. The second trial that was started almost at the same time was a phase three trial, and that included more intermediate risk patients, those patients who had tumors that were three centimeters or greater, and again with some of the other profiles of tumor rupture, multiple tumors. None of these patients were selected by mitotic rate. The reason for that was that there was a general feeling that that was something that was rather subjective and really couldn't be reproduced in a large patient multi-institutional trial. At any rate, the phase three trial was subject to a independent interim analysis. And the results of that, I think about 650 patients or so into the trial, that interim analysis yielded a positive effect for the treated patient group. And in this case, it was relapse-free survival so that the patients on 400 milligrams a day of imatinib did better than the patients on placebo. When you break those numbers out and you look at the group that benefited the most, it was the group that had the highest risk tumors. And the statistical evidence that it helped those patients who had three to six centimeter tumors was much less impressive. 
The other thing you got to remember is that these patients only took imatinib for one year. And the breakout of that looks like those patients after a year, the treated group, began to have fall off. They began to recur. And they began to recur in a slope that looked just like the untreated group. So that it's probably reasonable to expect that a year of imatinib is probably not enough for those patients at very high risk of recurrence. And it's probably reasonable to expect that one would get about a six-month benefit in terms of progression-free survival by taking one year of imatinib at 400 milligrams a day. There are several other trials that are ongoing right now in the European area looking at different dosing, either giving patients no drug or giving them drug for two years. So they're looking at different dosing and different intervals. And another trial, I believe, from the EORTC that's actually looking at survival, which will probably take a long time and a lot of patience to answer. So we're still sort of in the middle of trying to solve this question. My guess is that this is a drug that probably will be effective in preventing disease in high-risk patients. I think the patient's going to have to take this drug for a long time, maybe until they recur. And I think the dose level probably will be somewhere around the starting dose unless we look at genotype and decide on a dose level based on the individual patient's genotype. Dr. Dimitri, right now in a non-protocol setting, what do you think is a rational approach in these patients? You know, in other tumors, we're used to thinking about risks and benefits. You know, I think about something like endocrine therapy and breast cancer with not too much downside. We tend to lower the bar way down. Patients at minimal risk for recurrence, 5-10% will get it because the toxicity and side effects are so low. Do you think that relative risk reduction concept applies to GIST, and how do you put it into practice? I think it absolutely applies. We don't know. There's a global argument right now about what is the value of recurrence-free survival without a documented overall survival benefit. And that leads to dramatic differences even amongst experts, where in Europe, the consensus guidelines are going to say, we don't think patients should receive adjuvant therapy as a standard, whereas in the United States, we feel much more confident that the strength of the randomized study is sufficient to justify giving adjuvant imatinib at least for a year to appropriately high-risk patients. It does beg the question of what is an appropriately high-risk patient. The curves are dramatically different for the patients whose tumors are greater than 10 centimeters. They recur very quickly. Relatively speaking, if they take no adjuvant therapy, they recur more slowly if they take a year of imatinib. But the question is, they still recur. So are we committing those patients to potentially lifelong therapy to try to keep their disease at bay? Well, if a young person has a 30-centimeter tumor, it may not be an unreasonable trade-off. Those are unusual situations, though. What has tended to happen is that we're moving from that extreme case, a young, healthy person with a 30-centimeter resected tumor at very high risk, to a perhaps late middle-aged person who has a 4-centimeter tumor with a very moderate to low risk who probably does not need imatinib. And I think part of the challenge for any practicing oncologist, be it community-based or academic-based, is trying to help patients and families deal with just that issue of relative risk and relative benefit for this agent, which is fairly tolerable, but has other issues associated with it. In these patients with, quote, low risk, what kind of risk are you talking about numerically? So the control arm 
of the randomized trial is informative in this way because after a couple of years, still more than 75% of patients are progression-free. So it's Does not... Does that mean 25% had a relapse? Who could have a relapse, exactly. What we are seeing is that individuals are choosing different things. This is very much personal-based. It's a matter of whether somebody is saying, you know what, I am very comfortable with the concept that if my disease recurs three years from now, I'll take imatinib, and you have data that says I have a 90% chance of benefit. And they're willing to do that. Other people are less willing to do that, and they're much more willing to take the adjuvant approach and try to prevent recurrence. Any reason, one way or the other, Dr. Trent, to think biologically earlier treatments going to mean we have this sort of general feeling in cancer, earlier treatments going to be better? Any reason to think that maybe there might be something you know, adverse about early treatment, that in some way when you stop it, it's going to you know, maybe accelerate? Well, a uh, couple of comments on that. So certainly in cancer in general, in most solid tumors, metastatic disease is not curable. So catching it late, as in multiple bilobar hepatic metastases, is not obviously a good thing. So that's what we're trying to avoid. So I'm pretty much an early adopter in the adjuvant data. And so it's only been presented in abstract form. It's not been peer-reviewed, and it's not been published yet. But the adjuvant data for the use of imatinib in primary gist is very good data, as we've been discussing. And it's a very well-done study. So I tend to have a low threshold for treating patients with primary gist with adjuvant imatinib. Now, on the other side of the coin, and particularly in Europe, there are some arguments that treating with imatinib early may be selecting for resistance. So that when it does develop, it's imatinib resistant and much more difficult to treat at that point. I mean, there's arguments for and against that, and it's a reasonable argument, but I don't let it deter me from treating a patient who I think would benefit from adjuvant therapy. Would it be reasonable to say that we don't have evidence to say that Gleevec cures anyone in the adjuvant setting? I mean, do we have data? We really can't say that anyone's cured. We can say that, is this another melanoma interferon story of delaying for a year? It's probably a little better than interferon in melanoma, just you know, from what we've seen in the metastatic setting. But like Dr. Love mentioned earlier, saying thousands and thousands of cases, we don't have that in GIST. And so we just don't have that data. But the metastatic data is so compelling. 90% of these patients respond. So it's hard to believe that it's not going to be of some help. And the risks of the drug are fairly low. Now, the European study is looking at overall survival. And like Dr. Eisenberg mentioned, that's going to take probably eight or nine more years before we get that data. I think the other thing, though, we have to remember, too, is that in most of these adjuvant studies, the stratification of risk is going to be really important because historically, some of these patients are going to be cured with surgery alone and really don't need the drug. So that information is going to be extremely important, not only stratification, but also a universal acceptance of what risk really means. But this is highly consistent with one other line of investigation that the French have pursued, which is take patients who have benefited in the metastatic setting and then have a complete response, either with drug alone or with drug plus surgery. And in those patients, if you randomize them to stop the imatinib or to continue it, the patients who stopped the imatinib within a few months 
will have their disease come right back. So even though they're in a complete response, they're definitely not cured. There are cells behind, and the imatinib was successfully controlling those tumors. So this is constantly suppressive therapy. There is not a lot of evidence that these patients are cured. All of my patients eight years out who are taking imatinib and are doing well, I have no doubt that if I stopped the imatinib, their tumors would wake up and progress. So if you now apply that to the adjuvant setting, you could ask, and we ask all the time, why did we only give the adjuvant therapy for a year? Why wasn't it no therapy versus lifelong therapy? That was the proper experiment. It was an experiment that was not done And actually, if you look at when people stop the imatinib and then start to watch the relapse rates parallel what the placebo group did at time zero, that's fundamentally the conflict that we see right now, that this is suppressive therapy. It doesn't mean it's not spectacularly effective. And it presents some reasonable conundrums for those of us in practice about how do we do this? If we had a 10-centimeter resected tumor and we wanted to keep it away lifelong, I know what my strategy would be. I would want to keep it away lifelong, and there's only one way I know to do that. And there, I guess there's another definition of cure, which is you know dying of something else and having a normal life expectancy, even though it's still sort of there. Is that a rational goal and just? I think it's a rational goal. The problem, in a sense, with just is that a lot of young people get it, so you have a lot longer time to follow those patients up. If you're 85 years old, a five-year disease progression-free survival could be tantamount to cure. And I think that's part of what happens in the carcinoma literature because those diseases typically afflict people over 65. What is the age distribution of GIST and what are the current theories in terms of causation or risk factors? It can hit people across the age spectrum with the median right around 50s and the late 50s, but there are infants and young kids with GIST all the way up to our oldest patient of 98. So it's across the age spectrum. There is no ethnic diversity here. It's got very similar incidents, apparently, in Japan, as in Scandinavia, as in South America. And the action of the drugs that we have is similar across the world. It's arithmetically identical. Very interesting, with the biggest prognostic and predictive factor for how the drugs work being the kinase genotype, whether it has a mutation and where that mutation is in the specific kinase. Any speculations about etiology, Dr. Trent, risk factors? There's a few. Like the family in my practice, they have a hereditary germline mutation in kit. And it follows an autosomal dominant pattern. So if a child inherits that gene, they will get just eventually. And then there's also a couple of other syndromes like neurofibromatosis. Individuals with neurofibromatosis probably have about a 7% chance of getting just in their lifetime. And it may be seen on CT scan and thought, oh, that's a schwannoma or a neurofibroma or something else, but 7% risk of just in their lifetime. And then there's a triad of Carney's triad. And the inheritance pattern in that disease is not completely clear, but one of the features is just, and they do not seem to have, most of them do not seem to have kit mutations, so it's not really clear what's causing the just in that syndrome. I mean, it may be a bit of an outlier. And this is important in one way because neurofibromatosis-associated just definitely, although it's unusual, has a more indolent behavior. So that's the kind of individualization we talk about. If somebody with neurofibromatosis happens to have a gist and it's taken out, even if it's a six-centimeter gist, our data suggests that that has an extraordinarily low chance of coming back, and that may be a patient who therefore chooses not to go on adjuvant treatment, knowing that 15 years from now it may still not come back without anything. 
any sort of creative paradigms out there in terms of what this is? I mean, it just doesn't sound like a typical, you know, it's so different from a typical carcinoma in terms of what the, you know, the pathophysiology is or etiology. Environmental factors, nothing? Nothing. It's bad luck at the kinase level. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad luck at the kinase level. I like that. <laughs>